You are listening to Discover, a podcast from the DIS Team Ministry. Hello and welcome to another podcast from the DIS Team Ministry. This year, I gather a lot of people are keeping their Christmas decorations up for a long time to cheer us up during these dark January COVID-ridden days. Or, of course, you might have taken yours down earlier in the month at the Feast of the Epiphany. Which is right to keep them up or take them down as soon as possible? Well, certainly, although the Feast of Christmas and might be over by the Epiphany and it's all back to work, from a liturgical point of view, the Church carries on the season of Christmas until the beginning of February, the 2nd of February. For a feast which is probably unique in the church calendar in having three different names. For centuries it was known as the purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Come the Reformation in the 16th century, Cranmer and others didn't like that, it sounded a bit too Marian for their taste, and so they brought in the other title, the Presentation of Christ in the Temple. But both before and after, its common name, its popular name, has always been Candlemas. And it's Candlemas we're going to be discussing here this morning. And I'm joined by our team rector, Canon Tony Billet, and by one of our authorised worship assistants, Jenny Vale. Hello to both of you and, and welcome. Hello. Hello. Now, I know you're both great fans of Candlemas and its uh, meaning, and so hopefully we'll uh, be able to discover for our listeners something of why it's so important, not just to the church, but to you two as well. So uh, coming first to Tony, if I may. Tony, I've given a very brief introduction to Candlemas. Perhaps you'd like to tell our listeners exactly what the feast is all about. Well, firstly, the story. The story is of Mary and Joseph taking the baby Jesus after 40 days of his life to the temple, which would have been the normal thing to do at that time. There they presented him and gave gifts, as was the case for all uh, couples. And whilst there, they are met by two very elderly people, a man called Simeon and a woman called Anna. Simeon recognises immediately from this very ordinary sight of a rather poorish uh, couple with a child that here was something very special. Here was the arrival in the temple of the Messiah, the chosen of God, the anointed one. And uh, he had waited all his life to see this. He'd been told in a prophecy that he would see it and This was the moment that he recognised the baby Jesus coming into the temple and the start of a major story. It was also accompanied by a lady called Anna, who we're told was very old, in her her late 80s, and she also saw this sight of the couple and the baby Jesus and recognised that here was something very special But they also both recognised something significant for Jesus's mother, Mary. They both noted that sorrow would be a major part of Mary's life, that the quotation is, a sword will pierce your your own uh, heart. And uh, and that, of course, we later come to know was what uh, happened for poor Mary as she saw Jesus die 
on the cross. But this story, an extraordinarily simple story about simple folk, it, it comes in a moment in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, uh, at a time in the year where we're still in the depths of winter, still very much in darkness, and we may well have put Christmas to bed and said that was all done back in uh, early January, but here at the end of January is the chance to celebrate again. And over the many years, the Christian church has encouraged people to celebrate the story of Christmas, the story of birth, the story of a beginning, and to enjoy it in what is the depths of winter, because this is the moment when Christmas, we're told, meets with Easter, and somehow we get a, 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 a sort of forerunning story of what's going to happen to this child and how it might all end. Thank you. And of course, it's it's in Luke's gospel, isn't it, particularly this story. And of course, Simeon's response, the Song of Simeon, is of course the Nunc Dimittis, which anybody who comes to Evensong is very familiar with. Jenny, you, you also are uh, find Candlemas particularly attractive as one of the uh, feasts of the church year. Tell us why it's so special for you. I think it's special for me because completes the nativity story um, we hear in St Luke's gospel particularly the story from Mary being visited by the angel right through to the birth of Jesus and we celebrate at Christmas but then we have this season of epiphany which is examples of how other people recognized Jesus and so we've heard about the shepherds, the angels spoke to them, we heard about the wise men following a star, and then through Epiphany we hear about other signs of Jesus' divinity being revealed to other people. So the dove at his baptism, his own recognition of Nathaniel when he meets him for the first time and actually it's obvious to Nathaniel that Jesus knows all about him, the turning of the water into wine at Cain of Galilee. These stories all come within Epiphany. And then Candlemas comes, and these two elderly people in the temple, we don't hear about them anywhere else in the Bible, but they must have been so close to God that the revelation comes to them without the need for any sign or symbol. They just know. In St. Luke's story, he tells us that the spirit moved Simeon to be at that place in the temple where Jesus, Mary and Joseph were approaching. And it, I just think, supposing we were on the steps of the church in Dis on market day in normal times, and a couple, young woman and man, appeared out of the crowd carrying a baby. We wouldn't even notice them most of the time. But in that crowded temple precinct, these two elderly people just knew. And I think that's a miracle, really. 
because it was God speaking to them. They weren't important. They didn't have lots of jobs to do. They didn't promote their faith. They were just there, real giants of faith, if you like. And I think they're just a wonderful example. It's being that's important rather than obviously doing. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it does to me. It's wonderful because it, it sort of sums up the, the Christmas and Epiphany season in a way. And certainly the Epiphany is sometimes known as the, the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. And the whole season is in a way about manifestation. He's suddenly being people realising who he is and, and he's being shown as the Messiah to different groups of people. Tony, you also talked about it being a, a wonderful feast in the middle of winter. Uh, and of course, one of the other great themes of the Christmas Epiphany liturgical season is light out of darkness. Um, and certainly the very name Candlemas indicates that it had quite a bit to do with, with light liturgically, in, certainly in the Middle Ages. So perhaps you could just briefly introduce what some of the liturgical elements of Candlemas are that pick up that theme. Well, light is certainly very core to this because it, in many ways I'm reminded of a famous painting by Rembrandt of this story of Jesus in the temple. It's a, a, in fact, Rembrandt paints more pictures of this biblical story than any other. I think he's done about three or four. And in every case, the pictures you see of Rembrandt's story of Jesus in the temple has this small little group of people, the mum, the dad, the baby, and Simeon and Anna, in a vast, I mean, really vast, um, sort of cave-like setting, which is the temple, and the light of around and surrounding Jesus is somewhat like a candle being lit in, in darkness. And I think this is, in a sense, what Rembrandt wants the people looking at his paintings to see that the light it starts from this very insignificant little baby Jesus. And I think, therefore, ever since, candles have been used by the church big time. Uh, and before, of course, electricity, the only form of light in any of these big, vast church buildings. And what, do, what does that kind of light do in a way that a, an electric light doesn't do? Namely, it allows you to see, but it also creates a sense of mystery. You don't see everything all at once. And in a sense, this is kind of like in keeping with this story, because it is the beginning of what Christians call salvation. Salvation doesn't, in my opinion, start and is there it is all over and done with. No, no, no. Salvation is a gradual process. And it is one which is a bit like a, a little candle shining in darkness. Indeed, core to all Christian spirituality is that Christians are people who who walk through darkness, and they do so with a small light. So in, in the church's past, people would bring all the candles that they would use for the whole of the next year and have them all blessed uh, because the candle is a fantastic symbol of what Christians believe about this subject. 
Also, I've noticed, uh, as I've looked over my many years of preaching about this, the other sort of symbol I've used quite a bit, uh, not in a sense connected, but very similar, is the snowdrop. I often talk about snowdrops because in England, snowdrops, um, the technical word for those who are the horticulturalists amongst us, knows that it's a galanthus, but, but actually... In England, it was always known as Candlemas bells because they appear, actually, I've got some in the garden now, so I don't have to wait until the end of um, January. But by the end of January, in Britain at least, we should be able to see masses and masses of snowdrops. And, and they are the really the only major flower that's around at this time of the year. And there's such a small, insignificant thing. And yet somehow they light up the whole of the garden by their presence. In that sense, there's a parallel to the candle. So again, the, the image here is, for a Christian anyway, is not salvation being, wow, Pam, but rather a gentle, gradual unfolding of realisation in what is in essence mystery. I can't, I will shut up now, but I will say, I do hope people will Google the Rembrandt pictures of the presentation, because if you go there, you'll see that the main canvas is this vast, dark, gloomy temple, but in the one little corner of it is the story we've spoken of. I'll, I'll come back to some of those themes in a moment. But first, Jenny, I know over in North Lotham, although the church had to be shut for much of Christmas for, for various reasons, I know that you had a lamp in the porch which was lit every evening so that people passing by could see it. And this, again, was part of a tiny light just showing that in amongst everything else, this was an important festival. I think it's important that we do emphasise, as Tony's just said, the smallness of Jesus when he was born, the smallness of the light of the candle, but how far-reaching it is. I mean, you yourself told the children a story of the young man who uh, was challenged with filling a great hall with something or other, and after trying various objects, suddenly realised that just by lighting a candle, the beams of that tiny little object would actually reach to the farthest corners of the rafters, not to make it brilliant and bright, but probably show up the cobwebs. But it did reach there, and it was a gentle but far-reaching light. I just find the whole concept so beautiful, and I think that's why I love it so much. It is a lovely service for, for this time of year, and certainly, as Tony said, in the Middle Ages, uh, the, the parishioners would, would bring candles or, or, or buy the candles, and they would be blessed and for, for use in the church throughout the year. Uh, so that, that was a lovely thing. Tony, you also said that it's, in a way, an end to the Christmas and Epiphany season, but it also is a sort of pivot into Lent, because although the, 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 the snowdrops show us um, that, that spring is on the way and we look forward to spring, in the Christian year, we're also very aware that very soon uh, we're going to be in the season of Lent, and that'll, of course, lead on to Holy Week. So w- would you like to expand on that a bit, the sort of 
pivotal nature of, of Candlemas in, in the year. Yes, in, in, in more recent years, in the last sort of hundred years, the church has referred to this festival, which is just one day, the 2nd of February, or the Sunday nearest the 2nd of February, um, as um, the linchpin, they call it the linchpin between Christmas and Easter. We've had, or we should have had throughout January, even though it's been dark and gloomy, we should have had a period of great celebration and rejoicing. But now we are told in this extraordinarily lovely story that there is a a bittersweetness to it. And, And the bittersweetness comes from that reference of Simeon noting that for Mary, a sword will pierce her heart. And Christians, uh, observing how salvation works, and I spoke earlier about how I, I think salvation works, it doesn't happen as a wow, but it happens as a gradual process. Uh, Christians under, come to understand that we still have a lot of darkness to walk through. In fact, in a sense, darkness never leaves us. But we do now have a candle that's going to help us walk through it. And so we're reminded that to get to Easter, which is, of course, the great high mark of Christianity, there has to be a travelling through the passion of Jesus and his suffering. And the Christian believes that as we do that, we are also being transformed and made the people God wants us to be. There's no shortcut. There's no way around this. We have to walk through this valley, which will be sometimes quite difficult. And therefore, Candlemas sort of says, yeah, you've had a month of great rejoicing. You've had shepherds, you've had kings, you've had all sorts of lovely things. Now, you've got to get down to the business of the Christian uh, journey. And the Christian journey will be a good one, but it won't be uh, exempt from suffering, from difficulty. So, Get real, understand what this story tells you, and be prepared. Take up your candle, but be aware that if you're a follower of Jesus, there will be some tough things ahead. Thanks very much for that. In the intro, I was talking about the way that this feast probably uniquely has has three different titles, and the one which was used, and indeed even in the Book of Common Prayer, is called The Presentation of Christ in the Temple, commonly called The Purification of St. Mary the Virgin. And this goes back to another element of the tale, that certainly in Hebrew thought, and indeed much much Christian thought throughout the Middle Ages and and later, childbirth made uh, women somehow ritually unclean, therefore they needed to to come back from that. There, There was that service which... I have never done in all the years of my uh, ordained life the churching of women, which is similar, I guess. Tony, have you ever been asked to officiate at such a thing? So, John, this is one of those rare occasions where I was hoping you'd go to Jenny first rather than me. (laughs) Um, But uh, like you, I'm afraid I have also never conducted one of these Mm -hmm. ceremonies, the churching of women, as it's called, I, I'm, I'm afraid, afraid I have to confess to saying I have nothing to say about it. I'm delighted if Jenny does. I think she might, <laughs> Jenny. <laughs> yes, I think I do, because my father was a vicar in 
inner city Sheffield for many years. And of course, that's part of the industrial, the south end of the industrial belt of Northern England. And there, there was a very, very strong superstition, I have to say, that for a woman to go into another house after she'd given birth would bring bad luck unless she'd been to church first. And they used to say to be done. But what they meant was to go through the service of Thanksgiving for safe delivery, really, or churching. So as a child, I vividly remember many times that the bell would go at tea time and somebody would go to the door. Is the father there? Yes. Why? Well, please, I need to be done because my mum won't let me go home until I've been done. And it was a person who'd given birth and needed to go to take the baby to see its granny. And she wouldn't have it in because it would be bad luck if you hadn't been through the churching ceremony first. And that always happened. He never said no. He just put his knife and fork down and off he'd go. And the ceremony, it takes about five minutes at the most, would be done and off she would go. But in those days, whenever we had baptisms, and we had baptisms, I should think, about 49 Sundays out of the year, often with more than two or three children to be baptised, or babies, of course, uh, at the beginning of the ceremony, before the actual baptism, are there any ladies or women here who need to be churched? And they'd troop into the side chapel and they'd go through this particular ceremony before the actual baptism took place. And oh, they were all very comfortable and everything's going to be all right. So although it was a superstition, it had grounds in the same sort of ceremony, getting over the dangers of childbirth and getting over the messiness of childbirth because in those days, the 40s, 50s, 60s, it was still a rather dangerous procedure, particularly in towns, because it's not like the country where birth and death are part of the cycle of life, but it's somehow in towns there's a much different sort of culture and these superstitions grew up. So, yes, I'm very familiar with this particular service. It's in the little... BCP prayer book immediately after the burial of the dead, which I always think is a bit strange place to have it, but there it is. Oh well, as Tony and I both said, I think it's it's one of those services that is, is more or less extinct. I think it yeah. is still very rarely done, but we can we we can leave that park that perhaps for the moment. And, uh, I think it was just interesting and useful. If any of our listeners have, have have any knowledge of it or any personal experience of it, we we'd love to hear from you. But you, you, our listeners can't see Tony's face. I can on the screen here. And uh, it, let's just say it's a picture. So I'll return to Tony and, and get back on to something a bit more mainstream. So although this year we might not be able to have people in church for the Candlemas feast, if in ordinary time, what would uh, people be doing and how would they be able to join in for the, the Candlemas celebrations? Well, I think it would be, in many ways, an invitation in normal time to, to come, to, to carry a candle with them and to celebrate 
this this concept of our faith is about walking through darkness to a, a wonderful resurrection at the end, but not without the darkness and not without the, the, the difficulties that such a life embodies. And the liturgy that we have at Candlemas reminds us of that kind of journey we must take, which is why quite often in many churches today, certainly not in my early days as a, ch- uh, as a child myself, we, we never had any of this stuff. It's a reasonably recent thing, although it, it has an, a more ancient tradition. We would journey from our seats to the font, to the place of baptism, where we would carry our candles and we would bring our celebration of Christmas to an end and and with even with things like hosannas and but then we would blow our candle out and say right now we have to face the second part of the journey which is a really the passion of our Lord and as it were get ourselves ready for the next major season that the church comes up against pretty soon which is of course the season of Lent which is one of much more conscious um, sacrificial living in order to get the fullness of the resurrection joy when we get to the end of it, namely to Easter. I always have a bit of a a sniff at Christians who want to avoid all of that. I used to find people used to come on Palm Sunday and wave their branches and all that. They didn't mind that. They said, don't involve me at all between now and next Sunday, because I don't want to go through all that awful stuff. Well, for a Christian, this is not a an option. This is something that actually all Christians have to do. They have to relive the passion of Jesus. And Candlemas, as it were, is the, the thing that says, I know which way we've got to go now. And so we're going to go it. Thinking about Candlemas, a couple of years ago, I had a conversation with Tony, I think, about Christingles. We had one Christingle service in our previous incumbent's ministry near the end of his time in North Rotham Church, and we had it on the Feast of Candlemas. And it was so significant to have it then because explaining to the children about the world Jesus, the light of the world being the candle, and the red band round the middle, the blood that he shed at Good Friday, ready for resurrection at Easter. And it really did work as a link between Christmas and Easter. And I'd love to reintroduce that at some point when we can have proper services in church, of course, because it seems a much more significant time to have it than three weeks before Christmas. It always seems a little bit bizarre to be holding it at that particular time. So it's just something I'd like to throw into the pot, if I may. Being a grumpy old man, John, as you well know, I'm not a great lover of Christingles. I mean, we all have to do them. You know, I'm not saying one doesn't do them. But actually what Jenny has just said is a very good thing, because I think if we've got to have the service of Christingle, and I'm, as I have confessed, I'm not a great fan of them, 
to have it at Candlemas is not a bad idea because it sort of makes it more significant. Alas, for poor Jenny and indeed for all of us who would prefer to do that, I suspect we would be ourselves crucified just before the Feast of Christmas if we tried to do that because everyone now has assumed that it takes pride of place literally a week before Christmas or even on Christmas Eve. My wife, who is a clergy person, she has to do Christingles and Christmas Eves and cribs all in one go. It seems to me I feel a headache coming on at the prospect. (laughs) What Jenny suggests is not a bad idea. It would fit better, but even so, I still feel that discussions about oranges and how juicy they are and all of that could block the importance of this great festival of Candlemas, which is not about oranges. In my previous parish, I had a very health and safety conscious set of church wardens who disliked the idea of candles and children and girls' long hair as a disaster waiting to happen. And so they insisted on us using glow sticks which the congregation were asked to, you know, sort of snap. And we had sort of purple and green and orange and red. It looked lovely, uh, but it rather took away from the symbolism of the, that there's a small light in, 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 in the darkness. But we are going to, hopefully, if the technology works, one of our live streams later this month, our live stream on a Sunday morning. Nowadays, lots of churches, as with the Epiphany, uh, we put these major feasts onto the nearest Sunday. And I think, Tony, you are going to be leading a sort of Candlemas-based service on the 27th, is that right? I think it's 31st this year, John, 31st of Jan. And, uh, and I know that she knows this, we'll all be pleasing, dear Jenny, because we're going to do it at North Lopham Church rather than at this. And that will be lovely hopefully for Jenny too, it will be a a great opportunity for those who want to watch and see some of the things we've been talking about, because that would be good. But may I, John, just raise one other issue about Mm -hmm. Candlemas, which I think would be a shame not to note if we were to not mention it. As I look back over my years as to how I've preached and what I've preached about over Candlemas, there is one other hugely important thing about this story, which is less to do with candles, perhaps, but I think we must never lose sight of it. And that is that the the heroes after Jesus in this story are two very old people. And I won't say hurrah, for old people in an age where the Christian church, it seems to me, is obsessed with getting young people and young families in. And that, of course, is is not wrong. But my worry about this is that it's overplayed because what we're presented with in this story is two remarkable people who have all their lives waited for God to act. They've waited decades with no hope of anything, and yet they've not lost their their longing, their hope for something good from God to happen. And these are the heroes. And I think this story also is a very powerful reminder to all of us not to rule out 
what, what is now called the spirituality of old age. People who have lived great lengths of years have great wisdom and far from saying, oh, no, we want all modern stuff and we want to make it all whizzy for 30-year-olds and their children, we must never, ever, ever do so at the expense of valuing and encouraging and recognising the wisdom of old age. So I wish to wave a flag for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Thank you very much. Well, I hope we've given our listeners a few things to think about and perhaps explore for themselves about the um, real meaning of Candlemas and the way it is so important in our liturgical church year. So thank you once again to Tony and to Jenny for being with us this morning. Thanks once again to Samuel, who beavers away behind the scenes to make sure these podcasts get out to you all. And uh, we hope to be broadcasting another podcast to you sometime in the next few weeks. Until then, from all of us on the ministry team, thank you for listening and goodbye. 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 Goodbye.